That's to synchronize audio, ZPAC, okay? Because I have with me today a very special guest, a Stanford professor type. Why? Because I'm in the Bay Area doing shows on the road and a good friend of mine, Dr. Patrick Ha, who you've seen on this uh, show and his wife, Julie, introduced me to Dr. To Dr. Holly Tabor, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford and Chair of some kind of bio one. <laughs> yeah, I'm Associate Director of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics here at Stanford. So. What a mm-hmm. gunner. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so bioethics is interesting to me because mm-hmm. I don't really understand what you guys do, mm. but we often rely on you in these really difficult times. Like mm-hmm. someone comes in with a DNR tattoo on their chest, but you <laughs> honor it, right? Right. Or uh, you know, th- there's a conflict in the ICU of a million different kinds. Mm-hmm. And so you sit on the committee here as well. I do. Um, and actually, I'm about to be the co-chair of the committee too. So, um, so yeah. So I do a lot of that work and I help run the ethics consultation service here at the adult hospital and I'm also on the children's hospital committee. So, wow. Yeah. So you do uh, patients of all ages then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I focus more of my time on adults, but yes, all ages. Got it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and over here, Packard is our children's hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, so that's where you see the kids. Well, here's a question. So how did you get into this? Because mm-hmm. when I call an ethics consult, mm-hmm. again, it's like this black box. Sometimes there's a hospitalist on there. Yeah. There's like some weird professorial type. Mm-hmm. There's always like just strange stuff. Yeah. How, how did you become a... Well, there are two parts of that. I think what is what is the ethics committee doing? Who's on it? And then right. how did I get into it? Um, I got into it through a very circuitous roundabout way, as I think sometimes some people have interesting stories in medicine and related fields of how they got into doing what they're doing. So I actually started out majoring in um, history of science in college, and so I was really interested. That's a thing. That's a thing. At some places, it's a thing. Yeah. Wow. Um, so like Pasteur, my yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of, um, um, Cox postulates and infectious disease. Um, oh, you mean the ones that aren't true, according to. <laughs> Duesberg, who says yeah, HIV exactly. doesn't cause AIDS. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I did my undergrad uh, research uh, thesis on um, diphtheria screening in the twenties. So um, that was good, like way back when. So uh, when you okay, when you defended your thesis, did you dress as a flapper? I did not, but that would have been good. I wish I, I wish <laughs> with, I'd with done that. I think if I did it now, maybe I would have actually done that. The coughing flapper that would have been a legendary uh, PhD. Yeah, uh, no. Defense. Then, then my th- defense would have been viral. It would have been. It would have been <laughs> viral, even in all over YouTube. <laughs> yeah, um, but no. Um, so I majored in that. I was really interested in the intersections between science and society. Um, I thought I wanted to be an MD. And so a mm. lot of people who do history of science, at least where I was, do it's a way to also be pre-med and do something that's not just straight science, straight bio. Mm. Um, and so I thought I wanted to be an MD, but I was also really interested in research. So after college, I decided I wanted to do research for a while and I did epidemiology research um, and actually at UCSF up in San Francisco. My hood. Yeah. So yeah. you're all over my place, man. I know we've UCSF, had a lot of, we have a lot of connections. You didn't go to Berkeley. No, point. no, yeah. I didn't go to Berkeley. Um, but um, but so yeah, um, did that and kind of got really fell in love with epidemiology and decided I actually wanted to do epidemiology research. So came back to Stanford actually to a building that's like right over there and um, started a PhD in epidemiology. So that was like step twist one. Right, right, <laughs> um, and right. then I um, <clears throat> took a genetics course and got really interested in the um, emerging field of genetic epidemiology. And so I sort of dove into genetics. And I actually did my dissertation research in a genetics lab here at Stanford, focusing on candidate gene approaches to complex traits, which is like a whole other topic about genetics. Wow. Um, but partly because of my interest in the intersections between science and society, I um, got really interested in ethical issues in genetics. And I um, did a postdoc that was kind of retraining basic scientists to be ethicists um, here at the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. Training basic scientists mm-hmm. to be ethicists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ah. In part, it was a funding through the National um, Human Genome Research Institute at NIH, and it was really trying to get people who had a really firm understanding of the science to be thinking about ethics and to be thinking about what kinds of research questions we have to ask in ethics around genetics, um, which is a funding mandate of the National Human Genome Research Institute. Ah, okay, so they're mandated so, to do this because, yeah. you know, the Nazis did all kinds of genetic stuff, exactly. but there was zero ethics. Yeah, that's part of it, which is also where a lot of our research regulations come from um, that govern IRBs and informed consent and so forth. But also, um, when the Human Genome Project was funded initially, there actually was a set-aside, a requirement for a certain proportion of it to be dedicated to ethical, legal, and social implications of genetics research. Oh, okay. So to yeah. this day, it's actually a congressional mandate for a percentage of the NHGRI budget to be focused on ethics research. Um, cool. So, so you kind of filled that space and you were yeah. training these scientists to think 
like less like scientists and also like yeah. people who are trying to think ethically and what are the yeah. consequences of and some of that is philosophical principles right. and ethics the thing you were saying you call an ethics consult in a hospital and you don't know who you're going to get it is a very multidisciplinary field um, mm. and it's been a little amorphous and there's actually an effort in the field to sort of consolidate and I can talk about that in a second but um, so I started this training to focus on ethics issues and genetics and as part of that I'm like oh I should learn about clinical ethics I should find out what that's about I should find out what clinical ethicists do I should get some training in that so I understand it because it's such a foundational part of like autonomy and beneficence and non-maleficence and justice the four classic principles of bioethics um, and so one of the one of the principles of bioethics was a Disney movie starring Angela <laughs> Julie. <laughs> yeah, Maleficence. Maleficence. Right. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't, we should. I should make a slide with that. That's. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's I'm good. always thinking, people. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and so, um, uh, I really loved clinical ethics, and I actually um, really enjoyed doing it, and it actually complemented the sort of more, um, the less tangible research I was doing. I love my research, but it's a lot less tangible than dealing with the kinds of ethical issues that you see in the hospital and even in the outpatient setting. So I really um, became. Um, uh, did a lot of training in clinical ethics and made that a key part of what I do. And so ever since then, um, what I do is really largely, a large part of my work is focused on clinical ethics. And so we have, JCO requires Oh, you said have, the J word. I know, By it. the way, but I want to say this. <laughs> she word. said JCO. She didn't say the Joint Commission. No. She said JCO. Is that bad? She, no, you're with me. <laughs> okay. I always get crapped on because people are like, you know, they haven't been called themselves JCO for 15 uh, well. years. And I'm like, they haven't earned anything but a Jacob. Well, I'm probably going to correct me if I get stuff wrong. But um but no, yeah. No, no, so, you got it right. <laughs> so they require eth some kind I believe they require some kind of ethics committee for most hospitals, but they don't say what that is. So there's mm. actually kind of a uh, a joke that an ethics committee can be like a rabbi, a priest and a box of donuts and <laughs> that, that's what it is. That's what it is at the other hospital, community hospital across yeah. the bay where I worked. It was like, yeah. let's call the ethics committee. It's like uh, why is the least ethical guy I know chairing the committee? <laughs> That's not a good sign. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I think at most academic medical centers and certainly places I've worked, there's an effort to make an ethics committee um, include people who have expertise mm. um, to be representative of different stakeholders within the institution. So really trying to have people with different disciplines be involved because I can't even tell you the number of times that nurses, respiratory therapists, other people have a different, social workers have different perspectives on the ethical issues that, that if you just had physicians in the room, you wouldn't necessarily hear that perspective. Mm. Um, and then- That makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. And then also there's actually an effort in, in my field to actually do certification and training for ethics consultants. So in the very near future, there actually will be more of a formal certification process and a, and a sort of test to show that you actually have the basic skills and the competencies, which a test which presumably I and others who do this work will pass, but also a, a, a path to help trainees to learn how to, to do learn that. how to do it. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you a practical question then. So there, all of that is your path to get to this. Mm -hmm. I'm Charlie Gard's parents, mm -hmm. and I'm in London and yeah. in the hospital, and I, I want to do X. I mm -hmm. want to take him out to mm -hmm. uh, the Vatican. And we call y'all. Mm -hmm. We call the ethics consult because the hospitalist is like the pediatric hospitalist is like. I'm out. Mm -hmm. You're out. It's yeah. it's this is too much. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is. How does this process then? How do you start thinking about this? How do you intake the information yeah. in the patient? Well, the Charlie Gard case and, and what are called sort of futility or medical ineffectiveness cases are kind of their own. They have some unique features to them, mm. um, especially in certain national and even state contexts. Mm. Um, so I could address just that, but I think if someone calls a consult, maybe I can twist the example a little bit to be a consult from the ICU. Yep. Um, the patient has an advanced direct that says he would only want this and not that, and the wife says something else, and the son says something else. And the that team, never happens. And the By the team, way, this is totally theoretical. Yes. We never see this. <laughs> and the team thinks that they really shouldn't do this procedure, you know, and so there's there's conflict, and there's conflict about values, mm. and there's conflict about effectiveness. Mm. There's conflict about um, uh, professionalism and professional ethics and what providers are obliged and not obliged to do under certain circumstances mm. where we think that things will or won't work. Um, and I think in, in in our institution, I think in a lot of institutions where there's a, uh, an active ethics committee and ethics consultants, we we come in um, and we talk to um, as many of the involved parties as we possibly can. So we talk to the treating team, and that is 
try we try to make that the whole team and as mm -hmm. many of the affiliated teams as we can. We talk to the patient if the patient's able to talk to us. We talk to the family members, either the actual surrogate or or if sometimes we're deciding who the most appropriate surrogate is, if that's not clear. Um, and we we have conversations. We provide feedback feedback about the law, about our policies here at our institution, which are guided by the law, and we help with um, negotiation, decision making, conflict mediation, sometimes over several meetings. And we usually make a recommendation. Our recommendations are not binding. Right. So um, yeah. Yeah. So we're not the police, um, and the goal is not to say, oh, you almost right. always not to say you shouldn't be doing that. Um, right. So we never do that, but we mostly don't do that. Um, and to be collaborative, but also to try to sort of improve communication, improve outcomes. Um, a lot of it ends up being conflict mediation. A lot of it ends up being we have more time to sit and listen and talk with people than a lot of other people do. So sometimes just by our going around talking with everybody or getting everybody in the same room to talk, mm. we can often provide clarity or help everyone get to a place where everyone can say, oh, okay, the problem here is actually X, not Y. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The yeah. problem here really is... Um, uh, the family is really traumatized by worrying about the patient being in pain, and so they're saying all these other things, but that's not actually really what they're worried about. They're worried about pain, you know, or or they're worried about time to have this other family member come visit, or you know. So you end up kind of getting at what the real core issue is. And it all it, it often seems to be that that's the case that mm -hmm. the stated problem is actually uh, um, a veneer over mm -hmm. what's really going on, and and the primary team may not have time to get at the heart. At mm -hmm. what's going on. They may not have the capacity or the skill set to yes. get at the heart. So even though we're encouraged to have these great bedside manners and we practice on fake patients and we do mm -hmm. all that, <laughs> yeah. most of us are a little bit off in terms mm -hmm. of our ability to really draw it out. And That's some true. are gifted. Now, I think this can actually be trained into people. I think so too, although yeah. I actually, um, your, uh, your um, uh, TED talk where you talk about <laughs> the robot. The empathy I think, robot. The empathy robot. Um, I think. Uh, I think. I agree. It can be taught. I think some people are better than others. I think some disciplines. Um, mm. encourage it and cultivate it more than others. So I'm not going to name any disciplines, but some I, disciplines are better than others. Um, uh, I will. <laughs> you, you can. <laughs> um, and I'll just look around. Yeah, right. um, but I think that the other thing um, uh, that I have, so I actually have a PhD, not an MD, um, but I've been working doing this kind of work for a while. And I actually think that, and I have colleagues who also have backgrounds in um, philosophy and, and other mm. kinds of disciplines, but who've worked in healthcare enough that they really know a lot of the lingo. They know about what they don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and they no one to ask questions, but we actually get the privilege of being able to say, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. Why can't you do the X? Or so you why get to isn't dig, why? Right, and, right. And, and Almost from a patient type Yeah, And sometimes we know what the answer is, yeah. um, or we guess what the answer is, and we're right. But I think even asking that question, there's a way you can ask that by not being an MD that, that um, is... I think sometimes illuminating and also less threatening um, yeah. to to physicians yeah. because it's like, well, I don't understand why, <laughs> you yeah. know? And then they're like, well, now that you now they mention it, I'm not sure why, <laughs> you know. So you can have different kinds of conversations. This happens so, quite a bit, yeah. and and like you said, nurses are a big part of it. Doctors yeah. are, and all their perspectives are important to loop in. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a JCO requirement to have an ethics committee. That's my understanding. We mm -hmm. can check that and, and come Feels out. right to I, me. I, but I think what it is and what it looks like is not specified, or at least it right. didn't used to be. But, um, but one thing we do know, you can't have open drinks while you're uh, no. judiciarating. Is <laughs> no. that the word, judiciarating, <laughs> yeah, exactly. on a case? Because exactly. if Jayco's involved, they're like, no. yeah, you can ethicalate, but you mm, can't drink Snapple yeah. while you do it. No, or, yeah. or no, uh, there are probably other weird things, like <laughs> no open-toed shoes while you're... <laughs> yeah, so. you know, exa exactly. <laughs> right. hey, wait a minute now. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a Stanford way. It's a Stanford way. You're very, you're very. My uh, Indian dad in called, your natural habitat. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. My Indian dad is constantly saying, "Why are you wearing your chappals everywhere you go? You know, it's so unprofessional. Everybody else has the the nice rock port." Because Rockport, very fancy. <laughs> I love your dad. I've never met your dad, oh, he's, but I feel like I've uh, met him through your videos. By so. proxy. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so, so I think ethics committees, part of our job is to listen. Part of our job is to provide clarity. Um, and I think the other thing we do that's not in the real time is, hey, we've been seeing a lot of consults happening around X. Mm. Um, what's going on there in a systems way? What is going on with our policy there? Is mm. there some reason why that keeps happening? Can mm. we work collaboratively to kind of figure out ways we can mitigate, prevent this stuff from happening. Bigger picture stuff that yeah. you're picking up because you're seeing these consults over yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. And are you always on the committee or do people rotate in and off? People rotate in and off. Yeah. I appear to be always on the committee. Yeah. But, um, um, I mean, I'm going to be co-chair of the committee, but we do rotate people on. We try to rotate people, um, not 
so frequently they don't get to benefit of experience, but we right. try to have um, you know new Grow. people come on. Um, we also I didn't mention we also try to have community members mm-hmm. because it's pretty important that community members also have a different perspective oh. than um, than hospital employees yeah um so we do that um and we try to often have members of communities that we think issues come up around yeah. and when i was at my previous institution we intentionally had some people who had disabilities and represented um, disability communities because we frequently had consults around that um so so that's part of it. I mean, obviously it's hard to have representation that you would want to have from as many communities as possible we try to mix it up a lot um and then we have a consult service so we take turns being on call 24 7 and um and we get a lot of we you know we, we're an active active service busy so. Yeah, especially mm-hmm. at an institution like Stanford yeah. where all kinds of stuff is hitting the fan, tertiary yeah. uh, referral center. Um, let me ask you a favor. I'm going to yeah. have you move your phone. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no Just because it's yeah. uh, going to vibrate our audio. Oh, no, no, yeah. And then this is what will happen. I'll get these emails. Yeah. Did you have move a vibrator the on the table? Like, yeah. what's going on? I'm like, it's called a phone. <laughs> Very then, observant audience. <laughs> ethically, yeah, they are. They are. They are. They're going to say all kinds of things yeah. like, "Z dog, why is your head shiny?" Because I'm bald. Okay, number next. Uh, yes. the, 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 speaking of that, now there was a. Um, oh, what was I going to ask you about the ethics of or, or ethical questions around? Oh, uh, patients mm-hmm. or community members who are sort of um, in an unhealthy way. Uh, either attacking or uh, threatening or stalking medical professionals. Do you get involved with that? Because a lot of our audience has, especially our nurses, have suffered uh, a lot of violence as we see opioid epidemic Mm -hmm. getting worse, mental health crisis getting worse. Is that a pur- purview of what you guys do at no, all? No, that's a really interesting question. I've definitely seen you guys talk about that on on your show and the different things that you guys put out. Um, to the degree that everything in the hospital is in our purview, mm. yes, it is. Um, I think I personally haven't had much um, specific work that I've done on that recently, but I do think we are constantly talking about navigating really high-stress situations mm. where patients and provider patients and family members or, or, or surrogates who are in there often um, push boundaries of behavior that veer into the kind of situation that I think you're talking about right um, and how do we ethically provide care how do we even legally fill our mandates of what we're required to do under MTALA in certain situations um, uh, while still also being a safe workplace um, while still maintaining professional integrity and, and, and professionalism. And I think it's an ongoing struggle. I know you guys have talked about this mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone has completely clear answers yet. We are not the people anyone calls first or well, probably course. second or third either. Right, right. Um, but I think the issues of how we not only set boundaries but also coach staff to know how best to handle a situation um, as it's starting to occur is is a is certainly an institutional issue that we and others are thinking about a lot. Yeah, because uh, it's it's like you said, I think we're trying to figure out what are those boundaries? When have those boundaries been crossed? Mm-hmm. When is it unethical to ask a nurse to continue to see an abusive, a verbally abusive, a sexually abusive patient? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I imagine those things, uh, you know, it's interesting when I was working full-time as a hospitalist at Stanford, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We didn't see it that much. Mm. It seems to be very rampant in the community. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, I really, agree. really, and especially in emergency departments. You know, you're seeing yeah. very sick. And you mentioned MTALA too. Like, mm-hmm. what are our obligations? Our, our legal and ethical mm-hmm. obligations around? By the way, can you help me? Yeah, this is something ZPAC that always comes up in my mind. The difference between ethics and morals. Ah, because be the hard questions. I like the hard <laughs> questions. I got smart um, people. I'm gonna make take advantage of it. So, and and other people will probably answer this question differently and possibly better, but I think um, morality, so there's morals and there's morality, right? To some degree, morals are sometimes considered to be equivalent with values, Mm. and values can sometimes be driven by societal morals and values, by religious or spiritual morals and values, you know, Ten Commandments, the things you shouldn't do, you know, um, sometimes they're driven by... Thou shalt not get just one little Caesar's pizza pizza. (laughs) Exactly. There must be two. There are rules. There There are rules. rules. This Um, isn't nom. And there are also morals that people and values that people share that people disagree on, you know, even in a fairly free and diverse society under ideal circumstances, which you can argue about whether that's where we are right now or not. But, um, and, and I think, um, um, but I think um, 
ethics is sort of a, I think of as a, as a, as a system of thinking about and framing questions and using a variety of tools, including morals, to inform what you think the right thing should do. Mm-hmm. Should so they're really more rules, and they're informed by morals. And again, I'm, I'm well, mansplaining a, this because yeah. I'm trying to understand it. No, 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 it's good. But yeah, yeah, so, so, so it, it, it's more of a code. Well, it's a, it can be a code, mm-hmm. but it's also a process. It's a framework oh. and a process. So okay. part of that could be professional societies have ethics guidelines, right? I mean, almost every medical professional society has some form of ethics guidelines that they create for their profession. Correct. And there are things that are common across all of those for nurses and social workers and, and different kinds of physicians and so forth. And then there are things that are different. You right. Know? And I think um, the things that are the same are maybe the most shared values. Yeah. Um, and the things that are the same in our profession professional ethics societies for our, our, our professional ethics guidelines in the U.S. may not be the same in other parts of the world, right? right. And they aren't about disclosure, about um, informed consent, about all sorts of things, about paternalism, all that can vary. Um, so I think of ethics as sort of a, a system of sort of um, exp- of processing and explaining and helping people navigate what our professional obligations are and trying, again, to balance benefits and harms and doing good and trying not to do harm. Trying not to do harm. In that context of the broader social context. Related to that, so it's a requirement, maybe it's an Mm -hmm. ethical thing to do, to do informed consent. Mm -hmm. Is our informed consent system as it currently stands broken and useless? Or is is it perfect? Uh, it's broken. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's useless because mm. I think um, uh, I was actually in a meeting the other day where people were talking about what's the point in asking people about this wasn't someone at Stanford, but what's the point of asking people from from form consent about use of their samples when once samples are de-identified, they get broadly shared regardless of what you've said about them, which is a whole other episode mm-hmm. topic. And I, my response to that was that the process of informed consent, even if it's flawed, is still very important, mm. um, both to the patient or the research participant and to the provider or the researcher and the institution and to society. This idea that you have to ask permission, I think, is really important. And the idea that you have to have enough information to make an informed choice. Right. But the reality is we do it badly. We do it badly. No yeah. one remembers anything they're told or that they sign. I sign these for myself mm. and for my kids. And so um, it's and like in Apple's terms and conditions. You're like, except. Except, yeah. yeah. And, and and I think, um, and then people are like, wait a minute, I didn't realize minute, I was yeah. signing. I have to form a that. human centipede as you part know, of using my you're iPhone. You're going to take yeah. what out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? What? I have to stay in this hospital how long? <laughs> you know? um, uh, um, so I think it's a very fun. I think, again, we have to move more towards a communication model that mm. makes informed consent part of ongoing communication. But I do think that there's some function to a formality. I think we have to innovate the way we do it so that people can consume the information in a way that makes it more meaningful to them. Mm. Um, but we're not there yet. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, one of the one of the interesting things that you work on as a personal passion and also mm-hmm. a professional passion mm-hmm. is disabilities. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the ethics around how do we take care of people with disabilities? Mm-hmm. How does that care actually influence the care mm-hmm. of of so-called well and healthy, yeah, uh, normally abled? I don't know what the term is. Yeah. By the way, I've been accused occasionally because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you got to understand, I'm a conditioned blob of goo that walks around (laughs) just spewing stuff, especially when we're live, I'll just be like, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And I've been accused of saying uh, words and things that are uh, construed as ableist Mm. or, and so I would love to learn Mm -hmm. more about your work with disabilities and and the ethics around that. And why why did it start? Like it's a personal thing. Yeah, it is. Well, um, so I I actually um, did some research in my in early part of grad school on genetics and autism. It wasn't the main Ge- part of my- Genetics and autism. Genetics of autism. But isn't it all just vaccines? Like, well, there's no genetic component, <laughs> Yeah, right? that's a yeah. whole other, you've done yeah. a couple shows on that. Yeah, um, anyway, least. no, it was actually, it was interesting. It was back in the day, it was one of, it was one of if not the largest um, family-based studies of autism um, back in the day. Um, mm. So anyway, I had some exposure to to autism through that work, but it was, a, it was a student. It was very, and I was in a lab and I wasn't really, you know, interacting. I was doing lab-based stuff, not actually interacting with patients and families and um, uh, 
in one of those great ironies of life, um, several years later when I had kids, um, my oldest son was diagnosed with autism when he was uh-huh. about three years old. Uh-huh. So I sort of have um, both prof- both then and later some professional connections to thinking about um, autism in particular, but disabilities. But then I also have the personal experience of being a parent of um, a child with a disability. Mm. And um, and then I have this sort of ethics hat. I talk about wearing multiple hats. I also have this ethics hat where I interact with parents of children and, and children and adolescents themselves and increasingly adults with all sorts of disabilities, mm. um, developmental disabilities, physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, so all kinds of things. And I think my kind of lenses are different, um, uh, if that's the right metaphor, for thinking about how disability is perceived by healthcare and how people with disabilities and families with um, family members with disabilities interact with the healthcare system. Mm. And I keep feeling like, you know, what's it called when you're doing the um, ophthalmological exam and they, they change the lenses so you can suddenly see more clearly? I, I call it this, number one number or two. number two. <laughs> yeah. Number one. And then you're like, I don't know which one is better. Yeah. But sometimes you get the change and it's like, oh my God, that's so much clearer. Yeah. I feel like that's what's happening with me in thinking about healthcare and disability yeah. and continuing to happen is something will happen and I see the issues totally differently. So so partly because of my personal experience and my professional experience, I've gotten really interested in the ways our healthcare um, healthcare enterprise does and doesn't meet the needs of people with disabilities. And, and, and this is nuanced. It's not like, do we have a handicap ramp? I'm just going to yeah, reframe yeah, this. Hey, come closer. Yeah, 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 close. I know I'm creepy. <laughs> no, you're not creepy. But this is what happens. I'm Eddie, just starstruck. No, no, no. Like, you know. <laughs> it's funny. Every time, guys, every time I do an interview, it uh, starts out where it's height and yeah. frame. Then I start talking and, and the, yeah. the guest starts to back up because <laughs> I am creepy no, AF. Not creepy. We just need like two straws and a drink and then we'd be, <laughs> <laughs> be close enough. Like a Jimmy Buffett <laughs> sort of scenario. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I will try to our, stay. We got our little microphone yeah. here. We're a pro operation. When We're I'm on the road, pro. I don't have Tom and Logan to help me. Uh, Normally Tom and Logan, Tom, and Logan. You, Tom would show up behind <laughs> us and like, just kind of like, hey. No. Uh, so it's not just, hand, it's not just ramps mm. and wheelchair no. accessible stuff. You're talking about your experience walking into a crowded waiting room, being mm-hmm. forced to wait mm-hmm. with a child who, for whom that much sensory mm-hmm. overload, that much uh, um, uh, stimulation is not necessarily the best fit right. for for how, how it's set up. Yeah, and that's partly my personal experience is that, um, and I've told this story a couple of times, but I um, even recently took my son to... Um, a healthcare visit with a specialist, and um, it's a. Everyone in your audience probably will have had this. It's a room that's really crowded, full of kids who don't want to be there, and they're screaming, and there's a TV playing like, a really loud cartoon, but the cartoon is so loud. Yeah, I mean, right. It's so loud. No one can hear this cartoon, and it's just like noise. I feel bad for the people who work there. I actually said to the receptionist last time I was there, I was like, "How do you manage that?" And she's like, "Oh, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. I don't even hear it anymore. <laughs> so, it's like a Teen Titans is going on. You know, yeah. the night begins to shine. <laughs> Believe me, I watch this cartoon yeah, because of my kids. Sorry. So yeah. loud cartoons. Loud cartoons and and then weights because we don't have, you know, all all clinical settings like that have weights mm. and indeterminate weights, especially for some specialties. And so recently with my son, we were waiting for an hour and forty five minutes. And that's nothing. And and, and it is nothing. But yeah. he, but he we were told there was some weight and he took one he's a good self advocate and he took one look at this room and was like, Yeah, no way, I am not sitting there. And we had I knew that might happen, so I'd arranged for my husband to take off work. He took him for a walk. I said I'd call them when it was time to come in. So we, because of our knowledge and resources, were able to sort of strategize around that. But most people can't do yeah. that. And it's not fair. And what happens is the kid doesn't get into the visit or they get into the visit and they're already um, more anxious and escalated. They can't communicate about what's bringing them there. Communication is so important in the assessment and the exam. And again, it's not just for kids. It's for adults, too, that adults have sometimes adults with disabilities have particularly intellectual and developmental disabilities have trouble communicating. And you need them to tell you what hurts and they need you to tell you why they don't feel good. And if they've already had this very amplifying experience. So the waiting room is just one example. But if I can, we, we never think about these things. But the thing is, it's true for everyone. So this is the whole sort of universal design idea that if you fix things or improve things for people with disabilities, you actually improve things for everybody. And and Apple's kind of done that with thinking about how some of their technology that helps people with disabilities actually improves their technology for other people. Other other tech companies have done that. But their accessibility tab on there in the settings make things big, Zoom. Exactly. And so I think we can also think in medicine about, you know, how we can use technology, but also how we can train people and give them easy to use tools. You know, we're not going to send everybody back to week long trainings on how to do this. So, how can we use what we have and how can we innovate where we are to address that? Yeah, what so, do you have there? So, what I have here, and I can't open them because 
it'll actually start using oh, it, it for audio. Yeah. These are Apple AirPods. Oh, you yeah, pull yeah. them out and you stick them in. So what Apple? Yeah. Oh, okay, I didn't recognize the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what Apple's been doing yeah. is they are uh, setting it up so that you can use your iPhone, which I'm recording mm -hmm. on right now, with these yep. earpods and use the microphone mm -hmm. on the iPhone to oh. amplify. So it's really? almost like an impromptu hearing aid in crowded um, situations. That's, and it, yeah. And it's directional because the iPhone is designed to pick up the person mm -hmm. in front of you. So this is example. a great example of design yeah. within the reach that helps everybody, but particularly people with maybe hearing yeah. uh, disabled. Well, it helps with outcomes. It helps with you know traditional healthcare outcomes like morbidity and mortality, and but it also and satisfaction. Satisfaction I mean, for sure, you know, which is the only outcome um, we care about. Press. Oh Katie. well, I got I got a, a survey after that thing. And I was oh. like, okay, you filled it <laughs> I out, like, and I got a call afterwards. So oh. um, so like, when you get a call. It's like, here's my number. You when can you get call a me. Call, yeah. um, but I mean, I said when I talked to the person, hey, I'm on your side here. Mm -hmm. Like, it's nobody's fault. Nobody's doing this intentionally. Right. Nobody's, you know, everybody's doing their best. But how can we think creatively about how we can do better and how can we create opportunities for advocacy or self-advocacy for people, mm. um, whether it's in pediatrics or in the adult setting. So the other way, if I can tell you about another story. Yeah. That's, so so um, uh, my family and my son have gotten really involved in Special Olympics. And wow, um, yeah. last uh, two weeks ago, we were in Seattle for the Special Olympics USA Games 2018. And I'd never been to that or anything like that before. And I have to say, the whole thing was an amazing experience. And I'll just give a, a shout out. Actually, ESPN did a really nice one-hour thing about oh, it. Wow. Um, yeah. But one of the things they did that's really relevant to this discussion in your audience is they have increasingly in the last couple of years started a healthy athletes program, partly because they recognize that most Special Olympics athletes and most people with disabilities of the kind that are included in Special Olympics have tremendous unmet health care needs. Tremendous. Really? You oh. would think they're in the Special Olympics. No, they're, they're... And, and that's exactly right. By right. being in the Special Olympics, they already are a specialized subset of people with disabilities right. who've gotten themselves there, who've likely had some sort of physical screening exam right. to be allowed to participate. So so you're right, but still, it's tremendous. And so wow. they do this on the state level, but at the national level, for the first time, they had a whole clinic in the University of Washington opened up a whole floor mm. um, with all these stations for different kind of healthcare things for all the athletes to go through. And they had it open for the longest they've ever had it open for six days of the whole session. Yeah. Um, and they saw, I asked, I found out, I got some data, some preliminary data about it. They saw a total of over 7,000 athletes while they were there um, and um, of all ages. Um, and they were looking at a bunch of different areas. They were looking at dental, um, uh, dental health. Yeah, which is a big deal because the oral system link and everything. Yeah, yeah. vision, hearing, um, general health promotion, BMI, um, that kind of thing, and healthy eating and, and habits. Um, and then um, podiatry, uh, feet. Uh -huh. And one of the incentives to get people to do this was they partnered with Brooks and they actually were giving free Brooks shoes of the correct size to anyone who went through at the least screen. a certain number of stations at the screening. Wow. And so they were these awesome shoes. I, I bought some, they were awesome. So it was a great you know, who doesn't want that? That's awesome. Did they have closed toes? Because I'm telling yes, you. Yes, they did have closed toes. Chappers don't even have toes. <laughs> Your father would be. <laughs> he would be happy with that. Slightly less than the rock ports, but still pretty good. So um, so the interesting thing I want to share about the and they were also giving out free glasses on the spot wow. with the correct prescription. Wow. And the director of it was telling me that in another Healthy Athletes event she was at, she met a kid who was getting glasses and apparently had previously had glasses. And she said, well, what happened to your glasses? And he said, oh, well, I have these bullies at school and they broke my glasses and my mom can't afford glasses. Aww. So we had to wait till the next Special Olympics event for me to get glasses. Oh so so anyway, just to some summary of the data and, and Dave Lennox, who's head of um, Washington Special Olympics, helped me out with this. Um, over 50% of them had the wrong shoe size, like wrong shoe size. And eight of them had sort of urgent referrals as a result of that from feet injuries from having the wrong wow. shoe size. Wow. So this is basic. Like they can't yeah. even have trouble connecting with the right people to explain that their feet hurt because they have the wrong shoes. Um, the other interesting things were 23% um, um, didn't pass the hearing exam. Over 46% got glasses and had the wrong, needed, needed um, a new prescription. Um, and then this was the, the one that really got me, the number of dental issues. Um, there were 64, or about 5% of them, who had urgent referrals for dental problems. Wow. So they're healthy enough to get to the games. They're healthy enough to get the health screening. They, they, they come and they have these urgent they need a root problem. canal i mean yeah they're Stat. in pain they're in pain wow. and potential health consequences from having dental problems a broader health right 
And and so it was shocking. I mean, and many more of them had, um, I think, uh, 33, uh, sorry, um, uh, 17% or about had untreated tooth decay. So so really serious health problems. And they're waiting. They had a dental um, van where they were doing procedures. Mm-hmm. And there was a wait. And people were waiting there for hours to get these free assessments. So, so let me, let me, so how on earth is this population it's almost like an impoverished homeless population in terms of the access, mm-hmm. the dental issues, yep. the shoe issues, yep. the hearing and vision issues. Mm-hmm. It's like we're t- dealing with homeless clinic at San Francisco in UCSF. Yeah, I mean, I don't know those numbers, but it does seem to me like it. And these are people who probably have a doctor. And yeah. so why is it? And I was actually asking some of my colleagues there, well, why is that? And I think it's a couple of things. Some of it is access. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's just literally hard to get an appointment if you have kinds of disabilities where you have to navigate the healthcare system. Right. So I think that's part of it. I think a lot of it, which I think is one of the key areas to target, and, and my colleague Dave Lennox was saying this too, is is providers opening their minds to thinking about how the encounter goes and thinking about how they communicate with people with disabilities. Huh. I think especially with intellectual and developmental disabilities, providers, especially in pediatrics, but even in adult care, frequently talk to the family member, the person's right, right there. Right, and now, they're I, sitting right I got there. five minutes, what's going on? Yeah. Tell me what's going on, I'm gonna talk to How's you, Tommy? Yeah. dad, you, brother, not to the patient. And there are reasons for that, but that misses an opportunity to engage the patient in a way the patient can engage back with you. And it's also based on, you were talking about ableism, I think we all, I mean, this is it's implicit bias and the data on implicit yeah. bias. We are all ableist, yeah. right? Um, and, and just saying we don't want to be isn't good Isn't enough. enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how do we create systems so we don't have to think about whether we're being ableist? I, I want to commend you for saying that. Yeah. That to me is a cr- cr- crucial thing. Don't blame people uh, for their implicit bias. Blame us if we don't do something systemically to overcome it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if everything becomes a workaround that works differently, then you don't have to think about it. Right. It just happens, right. whether it's technology or something else. So how do we ask questions? How do we get information in advance? Can we do um, exchange of information better in advance of the visit to get what the question is Fill in the EHR in advance. Yeah, or can we have um, uh, other kinds of tools that will help do that? And then the other thing that um, Dave Lennox at Special Olympics Washington was saying is for all the healthy athletes program, this occurs in every state, and I know you have um, viewers from every state, is... is um, And Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico, which, which is... Which isn't a state. Should be a state. But should um, be. Um, uh, and... Um, and and Special Olympics also does this globally as well, but it's this idea that um, they have to go somewhere. So if they do a screening and they go, okay, you've got high blood pressure, you need a referral for high blood pressure. They do two things. First of all, they create a report that summarizes what the problem is. Hmm. So the athlete or the athlete's family can go with the athlete and bring it in and not have to do necessarily, they may do their own workup anyway, but like we're here for the high blood pressure. You know, hmm. There's a problem with this and you don't have to have the communication intro that can be hard about doc i'm here for x right um and then you can go from there with what you need to do right and it's up to the doctor and then secondly they have a list of local refer refer you know people to refer to so so you need a physical therapist to help you with your knee pain and you live in redwood city here's our list of providers who have told special olympics that they are open to taking people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and and we don't know for sure if they've had training but they have come to us and said um uh, we are here for referrals from this population. Mm. And so I think one of the other take-homes to your audience is, I think to the degree providers can get themselves or their institutions to be added to those referral lists just by calling their their Special Olympics office in their region, that will increase, they will, they will increasingly have more training videos and things for people who do that work, but it will also increase opportunities for that patient population to get access to care. And these um, are not just children, these are adults. Oh, these I, I would say it's yeah. mostly adults. Mostly there adults, are, yeah. there are kids who do Special Olympics, but I think in this population, they were largely adults. And and I walked away, I mean, I kind of, I was I was so excited to go see this. I was fascinated. I loved the tour. I learned so much. I met a lot of athletes and talked to them about this. And I walked away from this um, really in tears because mm. I knew we were scratching the surface, that these were the healthy people yeah. who got in this population. The need is so much worse than these numbers reflect. And and so I'm, you know, and, and you know, we were also talking, my colleague and I, about what, what can't we fix? We probably can't make the visit longer. You know, we can't make the insurance system more incentivized right. to do it differently. Those are big problems that are not going to get fixed. But what are the low-hanging fruit? What are the innovative things? How can we encourage 
um, all of the clinicians who and healthcare professionals who do interact with this population to do it differently. And I just that's where I'm really interested in thinking about change. So you had a couple of calls to action. One is uh, reach out to your local Special Olympics mm-hmm. office and see if you can get on their referral list yeah. so that you can provide access to yeah. these kids. The second thing would be maybe to rethink or reevaluate or retrain in how you approach even the intake mm-hmm. of patients with disabilities. Yeah. How do you make it, uh, and, and it's, it's different for each patient. There's no one size fits all. Right. So maybe part of the system would be to figure out how to individualize mm-hmm. the experience. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things I think I've heard you say before in talks is you assume competence. Yes, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, assume or presume, sometimes people say it both ways. Mm. And I think that's so important. And that's something I've learned as both a parent and a healthcare person involved in the healthcare enterprise is we all, again, going back to this implicit bias, Mm. um, I think we all see somebody with a visible or an invisible, and we just discover it, disability, Mm. and we make assumptions. Mm. Um, And I see this in healthcare all the time. Oh, this is a person with, there was just a story um, about this happening with someone with autism where they're, um, uh, not here, but somewhere else where where, um, something got put in the EHR about this person has autism and therefore um, has um, mental retardation and doesn't have accurate information about their symptoms oh, wow. and what their needs are, which yeah. is, of course, not necessarily true. true so there's yeah. all sorts of assumptions, and then it gets in the medical record, and, and then it gets there. copied and pasted over and over again, and then, you know, and populated, and then that's that. So Don't make me rant about those EHRs. EHRs. So there's a whole, I think, I think actually there are things we can do in EHRs to flag, this is this person's communicate preferred communication re- method, this is what their diagnosis actually is, so you should go look at this, um, you know, uh, smart text about how you, what questions you should, we could do things like that. That would probably help. Um, but I think presuming competence is talk to the person, ask them or the person who's with them, how do you like to communicate? Mm. Um, say, Hey, I want you to tell me both what's on your mind, not just what I'm asking you, because you might not think to ask the right question. And a person who has communication problems or anxiety problems or may not bring up, oh yeah, by the way, I have this other health problem, they may leave without ever telling you because you didn't ask them, you right, know? Right. Um, and they, you didn't think they were there for that reason. So I think presuming competence is really a fundamental um, social justice issue that's yeah. in healthcare as well as in our society. And it's part of what Special Olympics is calling, but it's not just Special Olympics, this idea of an inclusion revolution. This idea that, um, and, and I'm not gonna be the first person to say that we don't just need this in disabilities, we need this in other areas too, but in disabilities that Still, for far too long, there's been segregation in our society in treating people with disabilities, whether it's physical or or non-physical, differently and making them separate and not having them have full access to a lot of the um, benefits and resources that most of us, many of us, take for granted. And how can we change our systems and change our approaches to actually promote inclusion in schools, in healthcare, in the political process, in just our local parks. My son's involved in this wonderful park here in Palo Alto, which is expanding the area called Magical Bridge, Mm. which is building inclusive parks for people with all kinds of disabilities. And so how can we think about small ways as well as big ways that we can do that in our daily lives? And I wanna reiterate uh, something for the audience. If you guys think this mm-hmm. is not a problem, mm-hmm. that that we are inclusive, that we have the ramps and mm-hmm. we have the requirement mm-hmm. for certain widths for the mm-hmm. uh, wheelchairs, and if you think that's enough, the Special Olympics data mm-hmm. says otherwise. That yeah. the, these ki- uh, adults and children who are probably at the end of the bell curve where they're getting the most attention, mm-hmm. just in that they are athletes and mm-hmm. they're competing, mm-hmm are having huge problems, dental, vision, health, uh, podiatry, that are unaddressed, which means we as a system have failed Mm -hmm. to include them. And it's no different than segregating racial populations and treating one as if it's inferior or putting up barriers to access. And that can be unintentional. It can be an implicit bias, which we have to recognize and devise systems to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Unintentional. And I think um, the other piece of it is I think that you're talking about morals and ethics. I mean, I think there's Mm -hmm. a moral argument for serving the healthcare needs of people with disabilities and thinking about how we can do that. But I also think there's an economic argument too, if you want to make an economic argument. I mean, I think, and this is not just true for the population of people with disabilities, but the costs of not serving these needs and not um, uh, doing preventive health measures and not treating things before they get really bad. I mean, we we see people in the ICU who Mm -hmm. have severe dental infections plus a bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. And so there are significant, 
significant healthcare costs to our whole system. There are significant impacts on our system. I think providers without guidance and coaching don't know how to best serve these patients. So that also affects the day-to-day -day working life of providers who are just struggling to manage their caseload and what they have to do that day. And so I think there are impacts beyond just why it's important morally and ethically to help people with disabilities. I think it affects all of us in other ways too. And also the other argument is all, some people would argue that all of us will be disabled in some way at some point in our lives or a family member. And so it's I actually us math. as well. Yeah, it's <laughs> right? true. No, no, no. And, and you know, you, uh, uh, you brought up a thing in the ICU, the biggest fear we would always have as as uh, docs is finding a dental abscess mm -hmm. in a Medicaid yep. patient. Yep. Because now it's an ordeal to find a dentist mm -hmm. and no one's gonna come to the hospital. Mm -hmm. They'll only do extractions, mm -hmm. uh, if that. And here's a potential source of infection, of sepsis, of inflammation, yeah. of stress, all these other things. Uh, so. Yes to everything you're saying. I think it's really cool that mm -hmm. as a bioethicist, mm -hmm. you've taken this on as a sort of a subspecialty. I'm starting to, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's an area I'm trying to get more involved in. So I love that you invited me to do this because it's something I'm really passionate about and I'm wanting to do more. And I'm interested to hear what people say too. You're going to get a lot of comments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing I'll say is that I think. Um, uh, the other piece of it is about values and quality of life. So mm. the other ableist thing you were talking about, presumed competence, is I think if you don't know, and I've learned this as a parent, as a uh, healthcare professional, if you don't know people with disabilities mm. and you just know, oh, my sister's sister's friend or the neighbor down the street or the guy at the grocery store that I see or whatever, you know, if you don't really know someone with a disability, mm. um, you tend to have a bunch of assumptions about what brings quality of life and value to yeah, the life of a yeah. person with a disability. And one of the interesting things about Special Olympics, I think most people have heard of Special Olympics, but they don't actually really know much about it. Right. I certainly was one of those people um, until not that long ago, um, is that people with all degree of of, de of developmental disability, intellectual disability in particular, but physical disability as well, their perception of value of life isn't necessarily the same mm. as someone who doesn't have that. Mm. And it's not true that they don't have any perception of value, that they don't have things that are important to them, that they don't have things that they do that they value important to them. And being able, for example, to go to their Special Olympics softball practice and games may be one of the things that gives them the most joy mm -hmm. and may in turn help them with um, a work that they do or a day program they do or or something else that they're doing in their lives that has value. And when they get so sick that they can't do that um, with healthcare issues that maybe aren't because of their primary underlying diagnosis that may be related to their disability, then they can't do those things. Mm -hmm. And so again, like to me, that's pretty fundamental. If you and I couldn't do the things we do in our daily right. lives, that would be a big deal to us, you know? And so-, so It's a question of beneficence. Are we doing yeah. something to help reduce, to bring them happiness or reduce suffering, non-maleficence? Yeah. And, and, you know, and that related to something I was gonna ask you about, um, this sort of morality around mm -hmm. this quality of uh, of life mm -hmm. uh, for, for for these people because we assume again like you yeah. said the 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 down syndrome mm -hmm. patient who's in a home mm -hmm. uh, who may be you know a little older and has mm -hmm. contractures and all that that yeah. they don't that they're not understanding what you're saying they're not feeling something that's right that's right. Joy, hope, fear, mm -hmm. sadness. Mm -hmm. And that is the deepest kind of ableist kind of bias. Yeah. And honestly, you know, look, when you're a, when you're a resident training yeah. and you get that page from the ER, yeah, we have somebody from X home. Mm -hmm. You already know, okay, this is a home that takes care of, of people with intellectual mm -hmm. disabilities, physical disabilities, yep. whether it's Down syndrome, whether it's uh, cerebral palsy, whether mm -hmm. whatever it is. And you just go, oh, how am I going to talk to this person? Yeah, maybe you've never done it before, right? Right. You're the resident, you may never have Mostly had not. that. Yeah, Mostly right. not. And you don't know what to do. Yeah. And I remember being in that situation. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, I did a show uh, that I'll send to you yeah. uh, with a Stanford radiologist named uh, Pete Oh, no, I've seen that show. Oh, you've seen it? Yes, She's yes. a fan. <laughs> kind of I a fan. I love it. It's why I the never, closest thing is sort I never, of the I know, I know. I never get to interview fans. <laughs> yeah, it's, no. I've it's always it. people who I've hate it. It's a great show about his experience. About his experience. Mm -hmm. Maybe he went, won't say what it was. but Oh, now, yeah. He, I mean, he went from uh, Stanford, uh, UCSF GI fellow, mm -hmm. had a mountain, had a biking accident in San Francisco, mm -hmm. ends up mm -hmm. with pretty much, you know, he's, he's a partial quad, more or less. Mm -hmm. And is now finds himself in situations mm -hmm. where he's misunderstood and misjudged. Now he's yeah. practicing radiology. No, I he's see him. A colleague of my wife. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, have dinner with him. 
but the thing about him is he went from this world of probably being fairly ableist because he yes. was a pretty, you know, uh, my my buddy was buddies with him before. Yeah. He's a different person before and after. Yeah. And now what what is interesting is he'll roll around on his Segway because that's how he's able to get yeah, around. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And people will give him crap. Yeah, people give him crap. No, I, I've heard he said that on your show. And yeah. And you're just like, okay, just let's not presume mm-hmm. <laughs> the worst about people. Yeah, well, and also ask people. Like, that's part yeah, of presuming ask. competence, which, Hold again, up. goes for every patient, whether they have disabilities or not, and, and your coworkers, too, is like, so what's important to you? You know, why yeah. why do you, why do is this important to you? How can I help you yeah. achieve that goal? And that your values also can change. All of us, our values, some of our values are constant, but some of our values change. His, his perspective changed. My perspective has changed as a parent and, and as someone who then sees this healthy athletes thing at Special Olympics. Our, our perspectives are evolving. Yeah. And so you can't, and again, with the purpose of him with disability, Abilities, assuming they have no input and no sense of their own values is is false, it's false uh, yeah. in almost every situation. I mean, somebody in your comments may point out there are people who really cannot interact in any way, shape, or form possible, and there's a whole separate show we could do about that. Oh, yeah. But the vast majority of people with um, with any kind of disability do actually have opinions and values and things about their life that they value that they would like to communicate with you, and it's important to figure out ways to ask that. So my partial call to action is let's keep it in our minds when we're dealing with anybody, any mm-hmm. human being, mm-hmm. but in particular those who have the label of you know disability or whatever it is, yeah. and think about it. Now, so many of our fans have children with autism, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you see it in the comments, and these are, our fans are science-driven yeah. people, and yeah. so they want to make things better in a systemic level. They don't wanna chase false stuff like yeah. vaccines and all that. They wanna mm-hmm. figure out, okay, there's one thing about what causes autism. There's another thing about how can we maximize absolutely their 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 life experience and their contributions, and uh, yeah. also how how we, how hard it is to parent. Well, and, and as I don't think my son would mind my sharing that as my own child with autism has gotten older, I have also thought about and tried to learn more about you know what it means to be someone becoming an adult with autism too, mm. and what it means to become you know how do you how I I guess I've become more aware of my own um, uh, I don't want to say bias in necessarily a bad way, but mm. I am an able-bodied person, and while I've got plenty of you know. Of things in my medical record, um, <laughs> by most people's definitions, I don't qualify as physically or intellectually disabled or developmentally disabled. Um, so I get to talk about this as his mom, and I get to talk about this as a healthcare provider. But we need to talk to people who have these conditions and involve them not mm-hmm. only in their own care, but in how we think about what the healthcare system should do. Um, and 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 you know, the disability rights movement sometimes gets criticized, but I think one of the messages that they bring that I really um, have learned to endorse is nothing about us without us. And this idea that mm. we don't know what I don't know what it's like to be you. You don't know what it's like to be me. In healthcare, you have to make assumptions to take care of people and you have to do the best you can. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm not saying that you never make assumptions or you never group people or classify, but have curiosity about the perspective of people whose lives are different than yours and that you may not know what that is. So I want to ask you, what, that, that's beautiful advice for anybody. Mm-hmm. And it comes uh, highly, uh, highly, it's more poignant coming from you because you, again, are walking that walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm and, trying to. And here's a question. So. The R word, mm. retarded. Yes, yes, yes. That has recently really been pulled into the sort of realm of, you know, the F word re- regarding mm-hmm. uh, yep. homosexuality or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a bunch of things. What are your thoughts around this word and the stigma around this word and the use yeah. of by kids and adults? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when I grew up and when you grew up, I think we're about the same yeah, I think so. Later. We may um, be a cohort. <laughs> um, is, um, Scooby-Doo was a thing? Yeah, Scooby-Doo yeah. was a thing. Um, uh, but I think um, uh, Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, Dukes of Hazard. Absolutely, okay. yes. Although that was Gre- more my husband. Than me, greatest American Hero? Yes, Greatest American Oh, God, we were singing that song the other day. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. My children, right, my children were mortified I was doing it in the other place. So anyway. <laughs> um, uh, but I think um, uh, the R word and the F word were cast around 
you know, like they were nothing but meant right. to be very stigmatizing and hurtful of and course. all the things that kids do and say to each other. And then I think the adults in our cohort and, who grew up in that time still do that and mm-hmm. still even make offhanded comments. Mm-hmm. They sometimes don't mean it badly. There's also concerns that we do this with mental illness, but that's all. Oh, we do that definitely. Topic. The word um, crazy is used yeah, a lot. Crazy yeah. insane. Mm-hmm. But I think for the R word in particular, um, the R word is incredibly damaging. And I think one of the things that Special Olympics has taken a lead in this as well is trying to spread the word to end the word. And so they started trying to do programs in schools Mm. to try to sort of make people um, understand the power of that word and why it's hurtful. So not just you're a terrible person because you use that word, but like you've heard people use that word so you don't understand why it's hurtful. Um, Let us explain to you. There have been a bunch of stories even in the recent news about um, uh, entertainers using that word um, and and why that's, and and movies and other kinds of things and why that's problematic. I think the N word is another word that that has become... appropriately completely unacceptable to use right right um, papa but, john's yeah that maybe yeah papa john's so that maybe maybe decades ago yeah wouldn't have had the same reaction to mm. people using it and so um I, and i think the challenge for healthcare providers providers is that mental retardation was a medical term and i suspect was even part of the dsm at yeah. one point mm-hmm. and 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 so they're sort of like, well, I don't mean it that way. I'm using it in a clinical way. <laughs> you know <laughs> right, what I mean? Right. And and especially among older clinicians. And so I really, I am very strongly um, uh, supportive of efforts to spread the word, to end the word, and to get people to stop using it. But it is an uphill battle. I mean, even in my children's school, people still use it. Yeah, um, I, so. I tell you, my my folks yeah. on my team use it. Yeah. Uh, and and the thing is, you know, because in our writing space. Mm-hmm. We regress to whatever childish behavior yeah. we do, and we'll. Well, and you're on the boundary of of also sort of what people are comfortable with. Like, we use things we learned when we were mm-hmm. kids, and even in training and stuff. And so, I think it's hard to break those habits. I had a friend on Facebook once who I adore and who I think is wonderful, who was talking about her cat and said something like, "Yeah, my cat's riding the short bus." Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. and I messaged her privately. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "So here's the thing. I know you didn't mean it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, but." That means something different than you might think it means. And so maybe you didn't know that, and maybe that's not the choice of words that you might want to choose knowing that you know that. So it wasn't, you're a bad person, I hate you, yeah. you should apologize, yeah, I'm yeah, going to yeah, publicly yeah. shame you. Yeah. It was, hey, that means something different than it did when we were kids. Um, and, and you know. So this, so, so this is, I'm glad you brought up that phrase, mm-hmm. short bus, because I was doing a, a, a metamoji piece. Where oh, I yeah, have, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have emojis. my, my uh, monkey primary care guy. <laughs> I know the monkey. Yeah. Yes, and he was attacking, um, who was he attacking? Uh, Anthony Mercola, who's oh. a kind of quacky, vaccines cause yeah, autism, yeah. all okay. kinds of terrible mm-hmm. things. So he was basically saying, well, this guy is, you know, this guy is so dumb. He is so dumb. He's smarter than any dolphin in the ocean. He's mm-hmm. smarter, you know, he's smarter than the dumbest. No, he's dumber than the smartest dolphin in the ocean. He was just going through this like, mm-hmm. Spur of consciousness. Yeah. And I said, even the dolphin that rode the short bus. Oh, interesting. He is smarter. Mm-hmm. He is he is less smart than that mm-hmm. dolphin. Mm-hmm. And just an offhand thing. I didn't see that one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. because you would have commented. I would have probably got, or I would have And, and, and it would have been appropriate yeah. because what, then what happened, we put it out and I got maybe five or six comments in the thread. A bunch of people, oh, that's hilarious. And then five or six comments which were like, you know, the short bus thing. Mm-hmm. And some of them were like, you're a bad person for saying this. And some of them were what you said, which Mm -hmm. is, here's what that means Mm -hmm. to people who X, Y, and Z. And I was so uncomfortable after that. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, and I couldn't. Because you're a nice person, right? Well, because because then when it's explained Mm -hmm. and you go, you know, it never occurred to me. Mm -hmm. And now it makes perfect sense that it could be a hurtful word to to, uh, uh, population people. And, but the thing is, I can't edit it out. So Facebook doesn't let you remove no, it. I know. And the thing was already like so popular. And so what I had to do was, I just had to do a show where I explained myself. Oh, and cool. I said, I'm, that's great. That you, you know, I didn't realize that this word yeah. had this context and this and this. And this. How many people learn something from you having that conversation? Well, that was I mean, the That's hope. better than you just erasing the show or, yeah, exactly. you know, I mean, that's editing. A, that was the hope. Yeah. And the thing is, again, like it's hard. I. I find apologizing for those things is a little awkward because it wasn't done with intent. No, of course not. Rather, I'll say, okay, now what I learned from this is this, that this is harmful, so I'm not gonna do it anymore, and here's why. Uh, so, you know, those things will happen and, and uh, we all try to learn. But- and that's how we make it better is like by talking about mm-hmm. it, right? I mean, I think I think we, I wanna live in a society where we can have those conversations and and maybe people won't even always agree, but you hear someone else's perspective. And, you, wanna, and so- you wanna hear something interesting? Yeah. I rode a short bus as a child because oh, I was in yeah. a private school and they had a special short bus yeah. for us. Well, that's the thing. A short bus isn't by nature 
yeah, created some. for special education. Right, right. <laughs> it's not. Right. It's actually a function of the long system of the Individualized Education Act or IDA in the United States about why people have to go to their home schools and they have to move people with trans. I mean, there's actually a history in I this. No, wow. Yeah. But they can use a short bus for anybody. Anything, right. It's not, but people, it's associated with yes. stigma. Yes. And it goes back to other public culture, popular culture representations of of disability that are sort of, um, uh, I don't mean knee jerk in a bad way, but instinctual without reflection, like, oh, I didn't realize that that person would react that way right. to my using that word or saying that thing. Right. I think the R word is moving more towards a way, f- the short bus is maybe still more in the people Lexicon. haven't thought about it. Yeah. Um, the R word I think is starting, but I think it's highly variable. And again, kids, you know, they, yeah. they don't, um, it, it, it how do we explain it to kids? Because that's where you learn it. There's there's so. there's comedians that have done bits on the R oh, word. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a whole thing with Netflix right now. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. about that. So. Right, right, right. Well, well, that's a subject of another. That's another topic, another yeah. decision. <laughs> so, boy, this is I've yeah, learned that's a so much fun. Lot. And I'm with like you, who I've admired for a long time. So Stanford professor. <laughs> I'm a bit of a fan. Stanford no, professor. No. <laughs> See, Dad, I told you, no, no, the no, smart no. people like us too. Yeah. Hi, hi. Not just the Tom Heinemans, okay? Who are you know? He's awesome. I can't say now. I can't say short bus, so I won't. But I'm just telling you, the bus he rode. Was right. of normal length. Normal length. <laughs> With closed-toed shoes. With closed-toed shoes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this so, has been fun. Dr. Holly Tabor, uh, what a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, professor, Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford, uh, Chair of the Biomedical Ethics Department. No. I said You just wrong. promoted me. Ah. Um, I'm Associate Director of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. That's what I meant to yeah, say. Yeah, that's okay. That's right. But, you know, I don't fire on all cylinders after. <laughs> so, uh, guys, here's the thing. If um, if you want to share this with other people, share the video. Uh, spread this idea about changing access for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it, this will also be a podcast, which will be more, um, uh, more easily chewed on if you're riding on a long commute than mm-hmm. an hour-long video. So please feel free to share that, too. We're on iTunes at Incident Report and on SoundCloud and Stitcher and all the other Everything. nonsense. I know. Are you not on anything? Well, I'm not on Snapchat because oh, that's just dumb. I was going to say, I think yeah. that's probably That's good. just really not okay. Yeah, no, I hear you. That is a yes. Uh, so on that note, guys, thank you. And thank, thank you, you uh, Dr. So Tabor. Thank you so much. It was what awesome. So much fun. And we out. Peace. <laughs>